Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. I'm Dave Yost. I'm here today with my guest, Joseph Nadal. Uh, Joseph here is in a PhD program at UIC. Joseph? That's correct. And uh, yeah, another Joseph, again, continuing our uh, the show's uh, proud line of uh, fellow DePaul graduates. Joseph went to uh, DePaul with me for the master's program in economics. Indeed. And today we're going to be talking about the Eurozone crisis. So uh, I know, uh, you know, conveniently, this is actually, uh, this topic is actually one of the impetuses of me doing this podcast, because two years ago, as, you know, Greece was in the news, uh, I was sitting having a conversation with some coworkers, and one of them was very dead set on uh you know the the european union uh imposing uh austerity measures onto greece because greece had spent you know their money poorly and you know this was them just getting what they deserved and we were kind of going back and forth i was kind of I was bringing up the economic arguments you know against that um or it, at least not not the arguments against, but the issues that come with something like austerity. And in the course of the discussion, uh, this, this coworker, you know, had said, he's like, well, I don't know much about economics, but, and I cut him off at, but I'm like, okay, you don't, you're admitting you don't know anything about this topic. And yet you have an opinion on it. Why is that? And, you know, he, wasn't sure. So, again, the, the, the idea behind this podcast is really for that one guy is you can listen to this and, and maybe get a little smarter on it. So, <clears throat> I think uh, the the Eurozone crisis, you know, we were talking before the, the show that, that at least for uh, Americans, that really came into uh, onto our radar into in 2015 with the the Greece Greek bailout, which I think <clears throat> you know uh, Joseph here can tell tell us that uh, uh, was that in fact the beginning of uh, the <laughs> eurozone crisis. I don't think so. As yeah. always, when it comes to economics, the things that we are trying to analyze are much more complex than you know what like the news are reporting. But in this sense, if we're referring particularly to like the bailouts, mm. there were like three bailouts for Greece. But in addition to that, also Ireland mm. and Portugal had to, you know, use this mechanism. And even Spain had some sort of bailout. But I would say that when it comes to the Euro crisis, it goes even like farther back in time. Mm. And maybe we need to understand the complexity of... Uh, the European Union. Yeah. Well, but, because I, I think, you know, most most sources will point to the, the beginning of the slide being around 2009. And I think, at least in the U.S., we were a little distracted in early 2009 from the, the economic woes of Europe because we, you know, had just, you know, hit bottom on, on our own, uh, you know, uh, financial crisis. And so the the kind of finer details of what was going on as as the eurozone started to tip uh, eluded us. Uh, so 
But again, yeah. you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're saying that really we got to go even further back. Yeah, but that, that that's a good point actually because we see like like the same crisis, a financial crisis, and actually it took place here, but we see the results and they are very different from one economic unit, mm. which is the U.S. and the other one, which is uh, the European Union, or in this particular case, the European or like the Eurozone. And I think it has to do with the fact that one was a, like a, a huge business cycle. That's why we might call it like the Great Recession. Yeah. But the other one was like a systemic problem. Mm. And that goes back to the difference between how the U.S. dealt with the Great Recession and how the U.S. dealt with like the Great Depression. Mm. In terms of output, the decrease was very similar. But back in you know those days, we didn't know that much. Well, I, I was not born, of course. <laughs> but we didn't know that much about macroeconomics and the difference between like microeconomics and macroeconomics and how some of you know the reasoning that applies to the individual doesn't hold when we extend that. And we didn't know that much about like uh, banking, uh, like uh, policies and like panic and all these things that might cause something that in theory is only like a business cycle mm. into something like much greater. So I think that's precisely why in 2015 people were, oh, this is the euro crisis, because it was still going on, yeah. whereas it was over here. So it tells you that probably there is something that goes beyond like the business cycle and has to do with the institution, which mm. in this case is the, the eurozone. And yeah, if you ask me for like, let's, you know, see where this starts, someone may point to like the beginning of the euro since if it's a, a indeed like a, a systemic problem then it has to do with like the foundations yeah so i mean it, you know by that logic let's i mean the beauty of the podcast is uh, you know we don't have to keep things simple we can deal with these issues in their full complexity so uh let's go all the way back um I guess, you know, the, the, the most deal with the, uh, you know, foundational ideas first is yeah. I, what, what is, or, or at least, uh, how did the Eurozone start? Okay. So <laughs> it's, it's a good point to begin with. And I would say it has to do, like, there are two components. One component is like the economic one. Mm. And the other one is almost like a political or social aspect. Mm. After World War Two. Uh, Europe realized that they couldn't afford anymore to have all these constant conflicts and this huge nationalism. So there was like this movement pushing forward like towards the European integration because it was a way to have a common identity. Yeah. By sharing like this common identity, they could, you know, try to avoid like new conflicts. And at the same time, Europe was devastated. Mm. So even from the the U.S. perspective, and the U.S. was also behind the creation of the, U the European Union, uh, it was interesting to try to, to create a, like a single entity that had like these liberal principles. Mm -hmm. And why? Well, because on one side you had the U.S., who probably like they, 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 the, 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 this country embodies these liberal principles, but on the other side you had the Soviet Union. That's okay. Dogs are just barking in the background. So there were like three main, uh, three main uh, institutions. Mm -hmm. 
but at the same time, what I was referring to, there, there are some economic reasons. Mm. So one of the institutions was like the, like the I don't remember very well like right now, but I think it was like either like the nuclear or, uh, yeah, I think it's nuclear or either, uh, I don't remember right now, but I think, uh, yes, uh, nuclear or atomic, atomic, uh, uh, agency. Okay. So in, in this sense, if you look at the like the economic aspect, it's clear that there are some externalities when we are dealing with nuclear energy. And yeah. we, like the, we need like some common criteria. Mm-hmm. So that's why we had like this institution. On the other hand, we had something that was called the like, European Colony Steel Community. Mm-hmm. And that, some people point to like this particular institution as the nest of the European Union because it began with uh, the Benelux, which is uh, Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg, they they, they did share a lot of like, commonalities. So the, the the three economies were really integrated, not only in terms of currency, but also in terms of trade. Well, and so they're basically trying to benefit from, rather than being three separate small economies, uh, you know, combining, uh, you know, through uh, treaty, um, or or agreement yeah to become one united mid-size economy correct and the point is that if you trade all the time then there are like some transaction costs so you're better off by sharing the same currency in Mm -hmm. this sense and the, the the countries that did join this union were on one hand france and on the other one germany mm. so at that point was almost you know like like people couldn't imagine that these countries you know could like get together but again you know like well, well france and germany having a long history of getting along well together yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> uh but i mean the you know the 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 point there you're, you're making seems that uh, you know with with europe in the uh late to post-industrial age, you know, when you're you're in entering into this realm of a, a globalized world and a globalized economy, you you've got this issue of the, these relatively tiny countries all trying to uh, operate completely separate economies and yet being such regular and significant trade partners with each other. There's a lot of inefficiencies that crop up. Um, and I think, you know, so, you know, it seems like the Eurozone was at least in principle a response to that of saying, okay, well, you know, how, how can we get rid of those inefficiencies and create a, 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 that, that same idea of a, a larger economy, a European economy that we can then benefit from, uh, being much more efficient than. 20 how many countries in the eurozone 28 28 uh yeah 28 separate economies yeah um and yeah i think like that's one of the points that they were trying to gain some sort of uh efficiency and increase the welfare of those who live there but that's why it's it's kind of ironic because at the same time and that's i'm gonna refer to like this particular point later on because this has to do with like the european economic community mm. but right now i'm talking about the european colony steel community yeah so that was a cartel mm. why because in theory when we talk about international trade we we want to create some efficiency by you know 
not having tariffs and all these uh, sorts of distortion and every single nation can devote most of you know their effort into what they are like very productive so productive that they are more efficient than other countries and we exchange these sort of uh, goods and services in such a way that uh, both uh, parties parties benefit uh, from it otherwise they wouldn't trade to begin with of course there are like some distributional uh, effects because some people might you know get hurt and like the mean doesn't imply that the, the, the distribution is like normally distributed and by that I mean that maybe like the tails or like the, the, the people who benefit from it are you know on one side not it's not like the the median, that's what I meant by mm. that. Like the mean and the median are not the same yeah. in the sense that maybe like there are like advantages for some people. But in this particular case, what they tried to do is to agree on like certain prices and certain conditions to make sure that there was no conflict in, you know, like decreasing the tariffs or like even devaluating your currency. Mm. So they, they, they tried to create this, but at the same time, they tried to protect themselves from what you were saying, like the U.S. was becoming uh, like very, very important in terms of, you know, exporting like uh, and manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And a, a way to protect themselves was like, OK, let's create this cartel similar to, you know, like when it comes to all like the the countries in, in the Middle East, uh, along with Venezuela. Yep. And and I think like that was the intention to, you know, have like this this power, which goes kind of against the economic principles that you need to defend like someone that goes beyond your borders which is like the the, the main propositions of international trade well well and it, it, you know it always seemed like they they were looking at it as a, a trade off of you know you're you're going to um, i guess uh, dilute the pool a little bit but you get uh, out of that, what you get is safety and stability. That's correct. Yeah, uh, and you know that, that. I mean, that's a incentive trade-off. Is yeah, we by by combining efforts by by entering into these agreements where uh, you know we're ensuring a, a smooth trade between ourselves and and and, and smooth inter economic interaction between you know, a, a slow, an ever-expanding, you know, union of countries. Um, yeah, we, we, we're going to miss out on opportunities to, you know, corner markets or, uh, you know, really uh, leverage uh, our own specialization. But what we, what we do get out of that is, is a nice steady growth line uh, rather than, unpredictability i guess yeah like to some extent i think like that's what they were looking for in terms mm -hmm. of like less volatility yeah and like a smooth uh, growth but at the same time i think it, it there's a paradox here because and that's uh the other uh idea that they had in mind which was to create kind of a very uh liberal uh institution which was like the uh, european economic community mm -hmm. And that that was based on uh, those who like really defend international trade, because it was let's get rid of you know any sort of like tariff, any sort of uh, distortion when it comes to 
like the currency itself and even when it comes to like mobility of capital or mobility of people uh, because that's one thing that normally we don't take into account when we try to analyze the efficiencies of uh, international trade mm. i mean it, it, to some people who are not familiar with uh, economics they might even get offended when you say well like people are also like an input in our production factory well and <clears throat> you know if, if you if, if you got well let's take the united states as, as the example because within the u.s we have mobility of, uh, of our uh, labor force in that if you know there's factories shutting down in the midwest but opening up in the you know say colorado u.s citizens can just you know if they so choose can just move and exactly. provide that additional uh or fill that additional demand for labor because there's no state to state there's really no issue with that but when you're talking about 28 separate countries without any sort of agreement in place for the for the mobility of the labor force that becomes difficult and it yeah. places ceilings on economic growth inside each of those countries because if demand for labor exceeds the supply of labor growth stalls yeah you're not competitive anymore yeah. because like your costs uh, increase and yeah and at the same time you need to take into account that there are so many languages within the mm. european union which is an extra cost that you don't have here and that that was another thing that uh like the problem here is since there was like this rigidity in the market in terms of mobility normally the countries in order to equilibrate or like adjust they used uh, devaluation Mm -hmm. Because it has the same effect in the sense that what you were saying, in if uh, like the cost of your labor increases, the only way to decrease that is and like uh, keep being competitive is probably by devaluating your currency mm -hmm. or in, uh, implementing some sort of tariffs that make like foreign goods uh, more expensive. Yeah, which again leads to all sorts of second and third order effects some of them unintentional uh that can that can again stall out growth yeah such as inflation yeah because uh one thing that we need to take into account when we devaluate the currency is that like sometimes we cannot uh have like a perfect exchange in the sense if now the prices of foreign goods are more expensive i'm not gonna stop all of a sudden to buy like foreign goods mm. maybe my country has no like hasn't like no 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 way to like produce the same stuff yeah so well, we, well real quick just just in case you've got listeners who uh that concept might sound odd to why any country would ever want to devalue their currency because isn't it always better for your money to be worth more uh, so I mean, I mean, you and I know that yeah, there are there are conditions under which it's it's actually beneficial to have a less valuable currency. Usually, when it comes to um, exchange rates for not just not just the currency itself, but the goods between uh, two countries. So if um, you know you're the U.S. and I'm you know Germany. And we're both competing for people to buy our exports. Yes. If I devalue, I mean, at the time, it'd be the Deutschmark. 
than re- you know for all the other countries out there who might be buying the or whatever product we're making the the widget they're going to get a much better deal in the exchange based off you know buying from me yeah. because you know the, the the mark is so low so you, again they get that much better deal but i wind up selling a lot more widgets than you do uh yeah because of that so and there are conditions i mean point being that there are conditions under which you know when you're dealing with the, the kind of global macroeconomic view under which it's actually beneficial to have a lower valued currency yeah and we're gonna i I guess uh go back to like this point of like Mm. uh why you know like a country wants to devaluate the currency but another thing is that if your debt you know happens to be uh denominated in your national currency then by devaluating uh you are like creating you 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 don't need to pay as much as you would without like the devaluation which is some sort of uh like a senior edge in the sense that by printing money you can pay your debt yeah so that's another reason why like sometimes it's interesting to to devaluate your currency and again there are like distributional effects Mm. because at the same time we're like uh, consumers are losing purchasing power workers are earning less than they used to and like you notice this uh like this effect like this negative effect being very important when it comes to like the price of oil for instance yeah because you cannot like get oil from like your own country like like the endowments are located in a particular area and even though you like devaluate your currency you don't have the capacity to produce oil Mm. so then it becomes even more expensive well because while your currency value may change uh, the price of oil does not relative to your currency yeah well so the the price of oil is um like in in nominal terms Mm. is higher and also in terms of purchasing power if i'm still making the same amount Mm. and at the same time and i think i'm I'm using oil to illustrate that it has to do with the elasticity yeah so how my uh imports change depending on the change in uh the in the currency Mm -hmm. So say that, you know, like uh, Samsung uh, is producing uh, Korea, South Korea, and uh, iPhones are produced here for simplicity. Since like the, the, the goods are very similar, if there's a huge change in the, in the currency, then we will observe that people will switch from iPhones to uh, Samsung's in, the, in case that there's a, a devaluation of like the... the the currency in, in, in South Korea, but or, or the other way around, if there is a an increase in, in, in you know in the in the currency in, in South Korea, then they will switch to iPhones. Yeah, and and again for our non-economist listeners, if you're if you're wondering what uh, you know Joseph here just threw out a term uh, that we use a lot uh, called elasticity, and yeah. I mean he just described as basically the the elasticity of a product how responsive you are yeah. when there is an increase in price so in this case we're using currency as price mm. because a currency that like the exchange rate determines the price of your own currency no so. exactly so you know in in this because uh, what we're uh talking about 
like the 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 Benelux uh, kind of uh, joining together. Uh, what year? That was uh, around the fifties. The fifties. Yeah, late and then like all the way up to like the sixties, mm. and like the, the 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 process kept going. It was not only at first. It was as I was referring the European coal and steel community, but like normally they point to the treaty like the Rome Treaty, mm-hmm. as the foundation of the European uh, Union. And th- th- this treaty involved uh, Italy, mm-hmm. France, uh, Germany, and these uh, three other countries. So th- th- that was one beginning. But then th- they kept going and they kept uh, enlarging the European Union. And that's why I think like the US was supportive too, because it was an extension of liberal values. Yeah. So at that time, there was kind of uh, a conflict in terms of like what values were exported, whether were like Soviet values or U.S. values. Well, and I, th- I think the, the U.S. is probably <clears throat> looking at the unionization of Europe as just an extension of uh, our, secu- our pre-existing security agreements like NATO. Of Well, you know, NATO is... Uh, the military side of this kind of coalescing of the continent, the Europe, you know, the development of a European Union is just another way to tie all of these uh, European countries together in such a way where they can stand firm against the Iron Curtain, you know, the the the, the Soviet, you know, threat, and <clears throat> you know that's. Uh, you can uh, look at that and say that that's, you know, short-sighted or, you know, or not, uh, depending on, I guess, the motives behind it. Uh, But, you know, regardless, you know, throughout that middle century period, Europe starts to, uh, you know, borders are still borders, but Europe starts to coalesce. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, I think... We even like can look at different uh, arguments or reasons to like get together and create this union. And again, what I was referring to is that you, if you want to create a, an economic uh, union, you need mobility of capital, mm. mobility of labor, and also mobility of uh, goods and services. And that was like the deal. And in order to like reach this deal, they decided that like the different governments couldn't like support the different exporters because otherwise we're going back to uh, like the, the period previous to the this uh, trade agreement in the sense that if you support um, your exporters then you you are kind of um, defeating the purpose of the agreement mm. which is that the country that that is more or like the, the firm that is like the the most productive needs to produce this this uh this product and then we only we also have comp- like competition among like different producers so that consumers can benefit a lot from that mm-hmm. because prices decrease you you don't need to like uh go and buy like a like say a, an italian product anymore but if there is a better car that comes from germany you are not prevented uh, uh from like you know buying this car since uh, now like there is no like uh either devaluation of your currency or even like uh, tariffs or other things that can prevent you from like buying well, that. Well, that basically would add to the price. So, yeah, I mean, in that case, you, you're comparing 
uh, what the a Volkswagen to an Alfa Romeo. Yeah, something. Uh, like that. And if if you know if I'm uh, a German uh, citizen who, uh, for whatever reason, uh, Germans being notorious for being flashy and ostentatious, <laughs> uh, I really want to drive an Alfa Romeo, uh, Romeo but. Because I've got to buy it from Italy, yeah. and there's tariffs in place between Germany and Italy, and you need to pay it in like foreign currency. Yeah, and, I've and got there, there's limitation in terms of capital mobility. Yeah, so. ba- basically, I've got to buy it in in lira, plus you know again the assumed tariffs between. I've just added in in real marks, you know maybe uh, three four thousand. Deutschmarks to the price, yeah, which is going to then discourage me from buying that Alfa Romeo and just going with the Volkswagen because I can get the the baseline price for it because it's made in Germany. But once you start to break that down and smooth transition, then I can buy the car I want. Or I, I you know, it, the it, <laughs> economists looking at the not so much preference but efficiency, I can buy the better car. Exactly. Like, and at, at the same time, the producer, like the automaker in this case, has an incentive to innovate mm-hmm. because they know that it's easier for you to switch from one. Well, if, if Volkswagen ever lets Alfa Romeo make a better, well, I mean, they're, they're a bad example because they're really not comparable. But let, let's assume Alfa Romeo or Volkswagen is also making, you know, uh, mind-bending sports cars uh you know if if volkswagen starts making a better one alfa romeo has to step up their game or all the business is going to go to volkswagen because there aren't those artificial barriers between the consumer and the product yeah then you go out like of business Mm. but like the government cannot help you out either Mm. that's that was like the, the initial idea Oh, okay. Yeah. So, like, they were like, we're not going to use uh, the government to uh, try to create some uh, extra inefficiencies. Because you don't have the incentive to innovate as much as you would. If, if there's a bailout waiting yeah. for you. Which might arise some sort of a moral hazard. Yeah. yeah. Well, because, again, at that point, you really, you know, whatever company you are, <clears throat> you have to stay competitive. Because uh, yeah, there there would be no, uh, no chance of being bailed out of, if you got too deep into the hole, which yeah. you know is capitalism working the way capitalism should. Yeah, if the treaty binds, and if if, if I, I can be honest with you, like right now the literature is pointing to the opposite di- direction, mm. uh, and the, the the reason is the the, the 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 argument is the following. So, if there is no competition. Uh, or like there is less competition, con- uh, companies uh, have a, like a, like they make more money. Like the, the profit is greater. By having a greater profit, you can devote some of this profit to R and D, mm. and then you can innovate. But when the market gets lower, then there is less capacity to innovate, and and that's what. A lot of economists uh, have like been pointing out in the probably like last three years or something like that, when they realized that maybe international trade is not that great. Well, you know, I think like most things, there's probably at least theoretically a sweet spot. 
Yeah, a, a, in theory. A, a, you know, if you've got your your uh, graph uh, overlaid, there's there's this weird polygon in the middle, which is like that's exactly where you want to be, where there's enough competition to spur innovation without there being too much competition to, uh, I guess, dissuade from that. Well, again, kind of trying to find, well, I mean, the economist term is the equilibrium point. So I, I think so. And I mean, it, I, I don't think like uh, I can elaborate a lot on this, but essentially they found like these results because uh, they were looking at uh, small and like uh, middle-sized uh, companies. Mm-hmm. And one thing that happens is that they're budget constrained, as opposed to other companies that can borrow money from financial markets. And like by financial markets, I, I mean not through the banking system. Yeah. So like the, the stock market, and, and that, that gives you a, a greater capacity to uh, balance this this trade-off between innovation and efficiency, okay. yeah. So normally they go together, but sometimes it, it, it must it might not be the case. So it seems like you know as we're approaching then the end of the twentieth century, uh, the the again the coalescing of Europe, especially you know with the the, the fall of communism, starts to starts to pick up momentum. Uh, the they're, yeah. they're getting good results. And it starts to build, and eventually, uh, I'm, again, I'm sure this was an idea that was floated back, all the way back to the the Council of Nicaea. But how about we get onto a common currency? Because again, that's the the efficiencies involved when you no longer have to worry about creating these deals for. Uh, relative valuations of, of respective currencies where you can just say, well, no, we're all on the same. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is uh, frictionless between countries. It, everybody's using the same money. Then there, there, there's no issue. And there's, there's no, um, I guess, <clears throat> uh, inefficiencies born from having to constantly juggle theoretically 28 different currencies so you know we we get to the point where it's time to introduce the euro yeah uh and uh you know as far as that you know at the point of that that creation because that was 99 so the the creation of the the the, the currency was like starting like was implemented in 1999 yeah but the idea was uh like it, it the agreement uh was reached in the 90s like early mm. 90s and it it, it it it's called the maastricht uh treaty mm. the maastricht treaty and basically uh, again the, the, the there were like different perspectives and i like uh the, the the term equilibrium in this case because you can see different forces with different interests but they like at some point these forces might equilibrate and that's what happened and if you want i can break out the like the different uh, perspective. Oh, the, absolutely! The, yeah, yeah. The, the I mean, because I have to imagine at the at the time in in the nineties when when this decision is coming up, you're going to have countries who go, yeah, absolutely, common currency, 
And <clears throat> I guess at least the assumption would be uh, that those countries are the ones with the currencies that are incredibly low valued. Uh, whereas, you know, countries that already have high value currency might be a little less interested in, in again, theoretically pooling everything together and thus possibly diluting the value of their currency. So, I mean, I have to imagine there were pros and cons yeah. at this point. I would say yes and no, in the sense that um, for some countries, you, you, mean, uh, you mean, for instance, like Germany, the, the Dutch mark was regarded as a hard currency. Mm. And by hard currency, I mean a currency that is reliable. And it's very difficult to uh, find like a, all of a sudden a huge devaluation yeah. in, in its value. And we use the term hard currency because it's a safe asset. So whenever you are holding uh, Deutsche Marks, or even in the, like the US is the main hard currency in the global economy, you know that the Fed is not gonna print a lot of money all of a sudden, creating like a huge uh, inflationary shock. Yeah, you're, I mean, there are mechanisms in place, at least you know, theoretically, to prevent things like hyperinflation. Correct. Because it's one of the objectives of the central bank. So that that was the case for Germany. And you might say, well, if that's the case, why are they interested in, you know, joining or sharing the same currency as other countries? The reason is that, as I was saying, other countries tend to uh, devaluate their currency. Mm. And German products were uh, becoming less and less uh, Competitive. Well, based on that whole idea of the exchange Correct. Uh, rate that, yes, you've got a very valuable currency, but now your products are less desirable because there's, eh, and this term isn't perfect for describing it, but essentially there's a markup because we have to, you know, in, in the exchange, we have to compensate for the fact that your currency is incredibly or relatively incredibly valuable. I don't know if I can do that in English grammar. Rel uh, relatively <laughs> incredibly. But we're, 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 we're going to move past yeah, that. You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was the idea for the Germans. And to be honest, there is a second idea. And I'm going to elaborate on this. But let me go to France. Yep. France had this idea that the U.S. was taking over... The, the the whole international community and arena and what? basically and basically that doesn't sound like something the u.s would do yeah i think yeah. probably if you ask uh, at that time you know charles de gaulle or someone like this like but the, the thing yeah so that that was one of for instance the u.s had like this idea of nato and one of the countries who like really they they really like fought against this idea was France mm. because they, they tried to have some uh, military independence. Yeah. If such thing exists. So they, they tried to do something similar with the euro. Mm. They said, right now, all of our currencies, to some extent, are pegged to the US dollar. I, I didn't uh, I didn't talk about Bretton Woods. And so I don't, I don't know if uh, I should talk about it. Oh, absolutely. Actually, because... I will say that that's one not in the research for this uh, particular episode, but my research for uh, previous episodes. Uh, Bretton Woods gets brought up a lot in conspiracy theories uh, regarding uh, 
uh, apparently, uh, at least from, again, the, the articles I've read on this, uh, that's where the Illuminati decided to create a one-world government, right? I'm not familiar with <laughs> yeah, no. no, yeah, yeah, give us an idea of, of, of the, you know, that, that particular agreement. So that particular agreement uh, brought about uh, some... So th there were two like two institutions. One was the IMF, mm. and the other one was the World Bank. But in addition to that, this agreement and, and this goes back to World War II. Uh, Europe was destroyed, and also they realized that like this, this this competition in terms of like devaluating your currency created even like a like greater conflicts instead of like mitigating them. So to create some stability. They decided to have like these common institutions, but at that at that time, as I was saying, uh, Europe was destroyed. So the country that uh, dictated the terms was the U.S. Mm. And on the other side of the agreement, you had the U.K. and the, the the person who represented the U.K. and in general, I would say like Europe or like the liberal world was uh, Keynes. Mm. So, and they decided that there, there had to be some sort of uh, stability. And stability was attained by sharing uh, not the same currency, but by being pegged to the same currency. Yeah. And the only, the only hard currency at that time was the US dollar. The US dollar also committed uh, its currency to the uh, gold standard. Mm -hmm. So not for individuals, but countries could uh, uh, exchange uh, dollars for a particular amount of, of gold. Mm. And, and by, by doing that, all, all, all the countries were committed to not generate uh, some sort of uh, inflation or even uh, try to deviate from like disagreement and devaluate the, 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 their currency. Well, I, I'm, unfortunately, I'm trying to remember the term, but it... Uh, basically created a and let's like say this isn't the right term but uh and it'll, it'll come to me later but a, a corridor yeah uh, they're, they're, so they're, it's, there's boundaries of really how there are like different terms like some mm -hmm. people say like a crawling peg yeah and some people say like a flexible band mm -hmm. but you know that you can either appreciate like your currency can either appreciate or depreciate up to a point and if it goes beyond this point, then like the central bank is going to intervene. Yeah, to, to regulate yeah. that back to kind of that, that again, it do, they don't all have to be moving precisely together, but no. generally in the same, yeah. you know, In a smooth manner. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was one of uh, the ideas. What happened, though, is that at some point with like the war in Vietnam, uh, the U.S. couldn't uh, keep up with the like the the relationship between the US dollar and gold. And France was taking advantage of that to be honest. Like they, <laughs> they like they I think like they sent several boats to the US and they they took advantage of like the exchange rate to uh, get some gold knowing that the the actual exchange rate uh, was uh, higher or like in other words the 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 US dollar was uh, devaluated. Mm. Not officially, but uh, it was uh, in the real market. So uh, uh, Nixon decided to stop this this uh, this gold standard, like this Bretton Woods system, and because of that, uh, 
Europe realized that probably, you know, uh, following the U.S. wasn't like the best idea. Well, I mean, when, once you're off that, that peg to, you know, the, the precious metal, I mean, <clears throat> history will show, show us that, I mean, after a, a period of, uh, you know, uh, runaway inflation in the U.S., we, we were able to bring it back down to a, a fairly stable rate, and we don't have an interest in wild swings in our currency, but you have to put yourself in the position of Europe without that guarantee, without that peg anymore, uh, you know, how can you be sure? And, and I, you know, I think one of the themes that seems to be, you know, as we move through time towards, you know, the, the creation of the Eurozone and the Euro is, is Europe after, uh, you know, uh, you, you can limit it to the early part of the 20th century, but honestly, even further back than that, after, after a lot of volatility, uh, both economically and militarily in Europe, Europe really wanted some stability, just a nice, smooth line, and it's you know it seems like they were willing to do what it took to get that. Yeah, I would say that's like the German view, mm. and the French view is we want like our sovereignty back, mm. and like they were very aggressive towards the dollar. They they really criticized like the role of the dollar in the international uh, economy, and they even. The prime minister, like even, call it like the exorbitant privilege. Yeah. So that that's one term that a lot of people still nowadays use to refer of like the the extra advantage that you have if you are a hard currency, because then people are willing to uh, accept your currency in other countries and you don't face like this transaction cost, and at the same time you know that there's gonna be a demand. Mm-hmm. Well, then, of your currency, and and of course that becomes somewhat self perpetuating. Is that the 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 more countries that are willing to accept your currency, the the more that there is that demand, correct? And it, it starts to build on itself. Um, and you know, again, you can imagine again France looking at that as as the dollar spreads throughout the world, and and being a little nervous in the same way anybody would be watching a currency spread around the world that isn't theirs. Yeah, because, and uh, yeah, so like there's this demand of dollars, but the, the Federal Reserve is only concerned about like the, the national economy. Mm. But if there is like this demand of dollars and yet you cannot get uh, dollars because uh, your currency is another one, the only uh, resource that you have is to buy financial products mm. from the country that has the hard currency. And this goes to probably like uh, to the national debt. Mm. When you issue bonds, these bonds are very attractive for foreigners. Since then, they know that they will get at some point uh, US dollars as well. Yeah, well, and, and of course, the uh, very... Uh, mm self-advantageous situation of uh, if if you want, you know, if you're another country out there and you want that investment of a, of a U.S. bond, um, the U.S. doesn't sell bonds for 
Deutschmarks. They sell them for dollars. So you, of course, have to exchange in, thus buying dollars, to then buy the treasury bill, which then gets paid out in dollars. Correct. Uh, thus kind of, again, keeping that, that ever-perpetuating incentive to uh, hold hold and trade in dollars. Uh, it's a neat little system we, we put together yeah, through it, the 20th century. It's good, and that's why probably like the, the French were jealous, mm. and they were saying, so if I'm a, a French... Well, well, I mean, jealous, but also, you know, again, it's that same, like, here in the U.S., we look at that as, you know, a very nice uh, deal. Uh, again, the world gets a, a nice stable currency, we we get a nice stable currency works out for everybody but and and this will be you know we'll come back around to this you know later on in the discussion it's it's understandable to see why a country like france would be nervous about that when the currency you're talking about is not one that you have any sort of control over so yeah the 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 dollars stable it's hard currency it's it's you know easily exchanged throughout the world but if the u.s ever just decided to hyperinflate our currency there's not much that france could do about it correct right? and so you know it, it, you I'm sure there, you know, because we're talking about the French, I'm sure there's a component of jealousy to it, but it's also that inability to self-determine. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, that's understandable. That's why they use uh, a lot of times, like, the term of uh, sovereignty. Yeah. And, like, at the same time, I, I guess that they need to take into account that if you are the French uh, government and you are issuing some bonds because you are increasing your... Uh, public spending, you need to offer uh, an interest rate mm. that is higher than the U.S. Only not only because of like disadvantage in the sense that say that I'm a a French firm that deals with other countries and I'm I'm a, an exporter, and I know I, I will need to use dollars, so I I, I might as well uh, invest in uh, U.S. bonds. Mm. Uh, as a financial product, since I will need uh, these uh, U.S. dollars to, um, uh, like, either buy, or yeah, in this case, like, buy imports from another country. So, like, the, the French decided, well, if all of us are Europeans, why do we need to rely on a, on like a third country to have like a common currency? Yeah. Why don't we create our own currency and then? even like the, the the French government would be able to issue like these bonds for a lower interest rate because the demand of national currency again goes to a level that would be similar to the US mm -hmm. uh, uh, demand within the European Union in such a way that you don't have any advantage anymore by buying US bonds. Mm -hmm. So there are like these two effects like the sovereignty in the sense you don't rely on the U.S. and whether, you know, like the monetary policy is expansionary or not, because uh, that, in fact, was a criticism from the, the Germans, because traditionally they, they've had, after World War II, uh, inflationary levels that were uh, below the U.S. But to keep the peg, in this case, what they had to do is to keep devaluating 
their currency or to like keep uh, printing uh, more money, so mm -hmm. to speak, like a monetary expansion to uh, maintain the peg. And this translated into uh, inflation. So that's why some people use the term uh, exporting the inflation. Or, mm. And that, that refers to the fact that the U.S. has this capacity since it's the hard currency. And that's that's one of the, the elements. And the second one was this, this capacity of issuing bonds for a lower interest rate than other countries or all else equal. That's the... So that, that was one of the arguments. And finally, there were like the Southern European uh, countries. In, in this sense, we need to take into account that the economic development was uh, much lower there. Uh, for instance, Portugal, Greece, and Spain, they had uh, a dictatorship for a long time mm -hmm. till the 80s when they, they joined the, the European uh, economic uh, communi community. And they were not very credible in terms of not devaluating their currency. They, 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 they used to do that very often. Even if you are within a peg, you know that you can deviate and maybe you are not a credible partner. Yeah. When, when like there are bad times, I'm going to go back to like my original strategy and devaluate my currency again. So the Germans decided, you know what? The only way to make sure that this is not going to happen is by having a new currency. It's no longer that you are pegged to like this uh, currency and it's a fixed it's a it's a fixed exchange rate, but we share the same currency. So and like you don't have the capacity to go to the central bank and tell them print more money because we need that. Well, and it's yeah. I mean, <clears throat> when you've got these these agreements of of pegs, like like you said, they they are really just agreements, yeah. and anyone can be any country in the mix. Can become a free rider at any point and just say well you know it's in our best interest to devalue our currency so we're going to do that and there's not a lot that the rest of the countries can do um so you know the the logical next step is well if we all share a currency that is then controlled by a european central bank then nobody can do that the, the, the euro will be worth what the European Central Bank determines it's worth. And you've just got to live within those constraints, which is a situation that was never going to spur any problems later on down the line. Uh, except, you know, it did. Yeah, it did. <laughs> and a lot. But, but, but I, mean, the, the, I mean, you can see, though, and, and I think this is the interesting thing about a lot of the elements leading up to the eurozone crisis is we can look back on that and go well that was obviously going to cause problems but the the logic behind it is there like of course single currency controlled by a continental central bank um to solve what was a very real problem of you know countries that had entered into these agreements diverging whenever it suited them uh, so, you know, the, it wasn't like one day Europe just woke up and decided to foolishly cobble together the system. It had very real, uh, underpinnings that, that very much needed the, based on the situation at the time, very much needed to be in place. And I think that's, you know, as we get later on into the actual Eurozone crisis period, 
is what becomes what, what makes the whole thing a little frustrating is like i say europe wasn't stupid in the way they put this together there was a very reasoned and smart but it still left some uh pretty significant uh flaws in the system that might crop up later yeah so the the i, I guess like the argument for southern countries mm. was that as you were saying if we can no longer devaluate our currency we can issue bonds and these bonds are going to be as reliable yep. as other countries like taking uh, aside like the the risks of uh, defaulting because uh like uh, public finances, but at least we know that they cannot use like this uh, devaluation uh, mechanism yeah. to, to, to attain that. And at first, like uh, even the UK, and that's uh, one thing that I, I forgot to mention before, like the creation of, of the Euro, there was an experiment and there was like this spec, but, uh, and like the anchor of this, uh, like uh, peg was, uh, the Dutch mark. Mm. But uh, a lot of countries couldn't keep up with the low inflation of the Dutch mark in the 90s and uh, 80s because of uh, several reasons. Uh, like there was a lot of uh, market rigidity in some countries in such a way that they kept asking for like higher and higher salaries, increasing the, the labor costs and the production costs. And you had also like a supply shock that came from uh, the oil like the, the oil price. So that was a problem. And when they decide to have this common uh, currency, the UK decided to uh, step aside, realizing that they couldn't keep up with the, the, the peg in, in, in the 90s. Mm -hmm. There is a, an episode that is very famous because uh, George Soros. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he made a billion dollars in a day. Yeah. Shorting on on the on the british pound and yeah. they couldn't keep up with with uh this uh peg and the reason why it, it might be interesting to have a, a common uh monetary union is if you have a lot of commonalities mm -hmm. because monetary policy has an impact on economic growth to some extent at least how smooth this economic growth would be and someone might say that even in the short run uh, it, it has an, an impact on uh, output. So if like the economies are very similar, then changing like the interest rate is going to affect all of them in the same way. Yeah. But if they are very uh, different, then we know that uh, like the same policy has uh, different effects for different countries. And of course, someone might say, well, even the US is not a perfect uh, monetary union, because say that the price of the oil goes up. If the price of the oil goes up, in theory, you might want to decrease the interest rate so that investing is, is not as costly as it, it would be without that because of the increase in uh, the oil price. Mm. But at the same time, you have Texas that is a producer. So like the, the, the shock, the, the supply shock, that uh, that comes from the, the change in the price of oil has a positive impact in Texas. And if you're decreasing, if you're making even more attractive to uh, invest or to borrow, even for consumption, maybe you are overheating the economy. So there is 
always like this trade-off between one sector and another one of the economy. And the, 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 the key is whether, you know, these differences are optimal or not. Mm. Sometimes they might not be optimal. And, and that, that's what uh, a lot of uh, economists have uh, pointed out when it comes to the U.S. But there is another uh, concept to take into account, which is mobility or flexibility. Yeah. So there are like two mechanisms to attain this flexibility. The first one is by getting rid of uh, rigidities in the market, such as uh, hours that someone works or uh, minimum wages. And the, the second one, and I think like the U.S. has been really successful in this aspect, is uh, labor mobility. Yeah. So if, uh, if Texas is booming, maybe like more people would go there. And well, yeah, it'll, it'll just lead, it, it, at least in theory, it'll lead to, you know, a shift in, lab, in, in the labor force or the, because there's, <clears throat> I mean, aside from the, the practical costs of, say, moving, moving you and your family, uh, there's no barrier to picking up stakes in Pennsylvania and moving to Texas if there's a you know better higher paying job waiting uh, waiting for you so since because there there's no issue with doing that i mean you're just going to have to go get a new driver's license at some point but uh, uh you know unlike again through a, a pre uh eurozone europe where if germany's heating up and you live in portugal uh Picking up from Portugal and moving to Germany to get a job is is a there's a lot more hurdles yeah. in the way of doing. That. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, you say, well, if I cannot do that, at least I want a salary that is lower than mine. Mm-hmm. But if for some reason the legislation prevents you from doing that, or like the the, the company, like then you have really high unemployment rates. Yeah, and on top of that, if you cannot have access to devaluating your currency, then we see like these huge imbalances. So that was like the main concern. How can we create this uh, common or like these common characteristics? Yeah. So that when we implement like a particular monetary policy, it, it, it will be optimal for all of them. So in the 60s, there was uh, this uh, like paper from uh, Mandel. He got like the the Nobel Prize for this paper that was like the economic uh, inspiration for the euro mm-hmm. where like basically he analyzes like this trade-off between symmetry and trade. If you have a lot of trade, as we were saying uh, at the very beginning, then we probably are better off by getting rid of like the different currencies and then there are like a lower transactions cost. But if we have a higher trade, normally it is because we are not very similar. No, well, because, you know, uh, each, you know, in this case, country or each division specializes in something else. Exactly. And so, therefore, there's a lot of opportunity to trade back and forth. Yeah. A lack of, uh, to use an economics term, homogeneity. Yeah. Where, you know, the... The yeah the the countries are unique. They make unique products that are in demand in each of the other countries, and so there you can you know circulate your your exports quite a bit. Yeah. So when you are exposed to international trade, 
then you see like these comparative advantages. Mm. And that's what creates like some sort of a specialization. And if like there is a lot of spe specialization, then they, they are not as common as they would as they would be in the absence of that. So that's why there was like this trade off. On one hand, they need to be like quite symmetric to implement like monetary policy. But on the other one, we're incentivizing like more international trade. And if there's like this trade, there's going to be like a, a higher degree of, of a specialization. So, yeah. so that that's why the, there has to be a point where it's optimal. Yeah. And, and th this was like the assessment that he was uh, trying to, to use. And in addition in, to that, or, or in this line, what uh, Maastricht tried to do, like, and Maastricht was the, a treaty, was to create some like baseline for all the countries so that the European Union made sure that uh, like the, the policies or like the in the eurozone would be optimal. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the three criteria were no one can exceed a 60 percent uh, like the debt of any of none of the countries can exceed the 60 per 60 percent of the GDP ratio, mm -hmm. then a three percent deficit and an inflation that cannot be more than 1.5 percent uh, higher than the three countries with the lowest inflation. Yeah. yeah. So the, the idea behind this, again, was to create this this, this sense of commonality. And yeah, the the. To, yeah, create a, a degree of homogeneity so that you're not pooling a bunch of vastly different things together and hoping that they work. Yeah. But some people say that they forgot. First, why did they choose these numbers? Stiglitz, like, uh, he has published a book recently, mm. and he says there's no scientific reason behind that. This is like an arbitrary thing. Why it's 60% and not 75%? Yeah. And we see like economies that are doing really well, such as the the U.S. in, in, in compared uh, at least compared to other uh, economies, where the the GDP uh, like the debt. Uh, GDP ratio is way higher, yeah. and it's not. It seems that it's not uh, against uh, economic growth. So why should it be uh, around sixty percent? And as a matter of fact, as we would see uh, li uh, later, the compliance rate for like uh, these uh, three criteria is very low. I think only like five countries within, or like even, or five or three countries within the eurozone comply with uh, these uh, three criteria. Well, and I, I think, it, you know, with those three criteria, it, you know, getting into um, an incent an idea of incentives that, again, they may have not been considering at the, this particular point, is that, you know, those criteria become criteria for entering the Eurozone. But I, I don't know if they considered what happens if you meet those criteria to enter the eurozone but then stop meeting those criteria i mean yeah I, the, there's like some moral hazard once you receive like the health insurance like you become like uh, riskier or mm. like things like this yeah i i would say that uh this was like it's, it's, a, it's a really good point in theory there were some mechanisms to prevent countries from like doing these actions since there were like uh, some sort of uh, economic penalties. Mm. If you uh, were 
to violate violate uh, this this criteria. So uh, at the same time, I think one important thing to take into account is that even though there were this was like the baseline, there 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 was no agreement for structural things because uh, having uh, a central bank goes beyond like uh, three criteria to intervene or something mm -hmm. like that. You need like banking supervision. You need to know what like the central bank is, like the, the goal of the central bank. You, we know that here in the US, we have a double mandate. And like uh, on one hand, we have like inflation, but on the other one, we have uh, employment. Whereas there was no agreement in the European Union, uh, sorry, in the European zone. And this has to do with the, 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 the constant conflict between France and Germany. But they decided to move on without an explicit agreement. So there were like some uh, things that they didn't agree on. For instance, there was no political inst integration. The Eurogroup, which represents the countries in the Eurozone that uh, share the, this like uh, currency, like the Euro, the, the, it doesn't even exist legally speaking. Mm. There is no parliament only for the Euro group, for like the Euro countries. And on top of that, we had the, 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 the banking supervision was to some extent uh, decentralized. And this creates again like some sort of moral hazard because if the, say like the Spanish National Bank has uh, a different interest than the German, like the Bundesbank, mm. then the, the supervision might differ and the, the, the criteria like the implementation of like this supervision might differ uh, as well in such a way that there is no way to control what's going on in a particular economy, even though they share the same currency. Yeah, well, and, and I think it gets to one of those kind of core or what's typically um, pointed to as one of those kind of core flaws and and, and, and this one you tell me if I'm wrong but I, I, I think this one's actually fairly accurate is in in the creation of the eurozone the way it was created um, you've got uh, one institution uh, essentially in charge of monetary policy yes and it's separate from you know, those in charge of fiscal policy, just like the U.S. with the Fed and Congress. The problem is, instead of two pillars, both with the exact same goal, you know, the Fed, the Federal Reserve and Congress, you when you boil it all down, have the same goal, which is a strong U.S. economy. Uh, so they can, even though they're independent of each other, as they should be for fiscal and monetary policy, they can still act in concert because they're, again, they're pushing towards that same goal. With the Eurozone, you've got uh, the European Central Bank running monetary policy. With yes. The, the interest of keeping the Euro strong and stable. And then 28 different fiscal policies being implemented Correct. by 28 different countries, each with their own separate goals in mind. Yes. And that the, the reason... For that, uh, I think has to do with Germany being really reluctant to share like some sort of fiscal integration with mm. other countries in such a way that they that there there, there, there is like a, a fiscal 
transfer of wealth from like those economies that are really wealthy to like those economies that are not that wealthy or that suffered the most from particular crisis. But there, there are some flaws and people have been pointing to, to the, the, these, these, these problems. And I think uh, the European Union uh, budget only accounts for 1% of the, of the European Union GDP. <laughs> so you, you can like have this notion of how decentralized the fiscal policy is. And it seems like there is a huge imbalance, as you are pointing, uh, in terms of like uh, monetary policy, completely centralized, whereas fiscal policy completely decentralized. Yeah. Well, and and again, when you get into those, you know, those issues of you've got uh, economies which are not necessarily, uh, I'm not going to say compatible, but uh, similar to each other. And, you know, what Italy might need at any given point in time isn't going to match what Germany and France need. And, yeah, if you don't have the, uh, the you know, the, uh, the flexibility that, you know, again, when we talk about the U.S., where if a certain state, city, region of the U.S. starts to boom because everything's fairly fluid within the borders of the country that you know there's gonna there's gonna be people negatively affected and positively affected but eventually the the national economy will stabilize itself you know there'll be mass movement of labor out into you know silicon valley outside of san francisco to to meet the demands of that booming economy eventually we hit an equilibrium point and everything kind of levels off when you're when you're dealing with these separate uh countries you know while, while they share a currency and have agreements to to create uh, artificial fluidity they are still separate countries with separate interests uh, you know I, germany still wants a very strong german economy and i don't know how willing they would be to say, well, what Greece really needs right now is, you know, 14 factories and we were going to build them in Germany and employ Germans in them, but we're going to tell those fa- those companies to move to Greece yeah. to, to give, you know, again, it's not, there's a way to paint that in a really negative light, but honestly, it's just, you know, Germans you know, engaging in self-interest, which you can't really, at least in economics, you can't really fault somebody for engaging in self-interest. Yeah, it's all about what you are maximizing. Yeah. Whether it's like the, the Eurozone as a whole or like a particular uh, like member of the Eurozone. And in this sense, I would say like there are two things to take into account. The first one is that one thing uh, really good about having this uh, common budget like this common fiscal uh, policy is the fact that then you have some automatic st- stabilizers. Mm. So it, it creates some stability because like, let me, let me use your example. What you were saying, it's, it's true that some people would move to the, the West Coast, but some people might stay there without a job. Yep. But you know that you're going to receive some sort of uh, subsidy or like... Uh, 
like a, like an insurance like a, of a, unemployment or something like yeah, that. The, the social safety. Yeah. So by doing that, the shock uh, decreases or it, it gets minimized. Otherwise, without like this uh, mechanism of transferring wealth, uh, the shock is gonna uh, become greater initially. Mm. Some people might say again that there's some moral hazard because if you know that you have the safety net, then the incentive to be more productive uh, decreases, yep. and instead you rely on on the on the like a, a social safety net. I, I don't know to which extent this is true when you are you know affected by a really uh, a huge uh, shock. But the other thing to take into account is that if you don't have this fiscal integration, then let let's say like the example of Texas and like an increase in uh, oil price. If like the Fed decides to decrease the interest rate, then one probably ad uh, adverse effect might be like uh, to overheat the, 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 the economy in Texas. But at the same time, it might be the case that if there is like a fiscal decentralization, Texas can increase some taxes and offset the monetary expansion by uh, having a, a monet, uh, fiscal uh, recession. Mm. And by recession, I mean uh, increasing taxes or lowering uh, subsidies or things that... Well, re recessing into the, 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 the boom, which again, should uh, stabilize. Yeah, but without this uh, decentralization, you don't have mm. this resource either. So not like normally, uh, fiscal and monetary policy would coordinate and then both would be accommodative like trying to like uh, create some uh, fiscal and monetary uh, stimuli so th that that that's the problem or again like the dilemma whether you need fiscal integration or not and the reasons are uh, monetary policy affects different areas in different ways and at the same time uh, fiscal integration guarantees that different shocks are not uh, are not as, as strong as it would be in the absence of fiscal integration. Mm. Well, and, and uh, you know, not uh, not only and and again, we'll keep coming back to the the U.S. as an example because you know, d despite the U.S.'s own economic issues over the past you know decade, um, structurally. The, the U.S. Is, is really well put together. And it's one of those things, I think, in the in the financial reporting, uh, the, the, the country never gets enough credit for. Because not only can, you know, while independent, can the, you know, the, those in charge of monetary policy and fiscal policy coordinate, but if they're not coordinating, they can compensate. So if, if, you know the the Congress just decides to start spending. The the, the Fed can react to that yeah. and say no 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 pull it back because you're 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 going to drag us to ruin if you do that, and you've got that that ability. Whereas, again, in this kind of decentralized fiscal policy, you, while having a unified monetary policy, which again I think kind of goes to that the. the core dilemma which uh, you know as we continue through the timeline is uh, spoiler alert going to become a problem <laughs> uh, 
you know, the, you, you don't have that be, because, and again, we'll kind of jump ahead a little bit. If if Greece's fiscal policy is not in concert with the rest of Europe, if it's in Greece's interest to keep spending, then uh, monetary, you know, monetary policy set by the European Central Bank may not want to compensate for that. Correct. Because that's not in the interest of everybody else or... I mean, more specifically, France and Germany, but um, you know, so you don't get that kind of again either coordination or compensation uh, that that ability to do those because you've got twenty eight different parties all with a you know potentially a completely different self interest, um, and so you know, in, in in you've got all of these significant benefits of Europe going on to the central currency but kind of just under the surface you see we, you know there's there's these you know uh, potential schisms that uh, at least you know for a while didn't seem to crop up but all, all it takes is one really good economic shock to, yeah. to suddenly throw bring these things to the fore and and all of a sudden you get trouble yeah and you like this trouble applies to like every single member that's why we don't call it like the greece crisis but instead the euro crisis and i, I think like some economists have uh, analyzed like the size like the economic size of uh, greece in relative terms compared to like the european union is uh is uh, smaller than like the state of delaware or something like that or even nevada and they like in the U.S. like similar shocks affected uh, similar states, but given like the different system, uh, the whole economy and even like this particular area was able to overcome the shocks because by design there were some mechanisms that tried to smooth as much as possible the like the negative effects. Yeah, well, and again, it's kind of that what what we've got in the U.S. is an overlap of centralized fiscal and monetary uh, and monetary policy while also decentralized fiscal policy down to the state and even municipal levels which again allows everyone to kind of balance against instability uh, which without upsetting the whole apple cart again you know nevada may have to raise taxes uh to compensate for you know shocks to the system but Nevada raising taxes doesn't necessarily put the Federal Reserve into crisis. Correct, correct. And, and I, I think uh, it's interesting what you were saying, that uh, if like some economy, some particular economy gets in trouble within the, the Eurozone, it doesn't imply that the, the central bank is going to accommodate like, or adapt like, uh, its policies to like, this particular economy. Mm. But and someone might wonder then was this the case where like people in southern economies expecting that from the ECB were they like naive in this regard or there were like bad precedents? Well, and 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 yeah, you do wonder. I, I mean, uh, I'm always a fan of uh, explanations that favor uh, chaos. Uh, 
uh, because to me they they tend to be right in that I don't think Greece came in thinking, well, if you know if if we get into trouble, um, you know we'll just we'll 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 you know uh, play play the 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 poker hand you know straight and uh, the central bank will just have to bend to us because what's your what's the rest of the eu gonna do uh i you know i don't think they came in intending to be necessarily potentially uh bad player in the game i think they came in with the best intentions thinking well you know we've got our issues we're gonna yeah, make ourselves look really attractive, and once we get into the European Union, once we get, uh, or not the, uh, once we get into the eurozone, once we get on the euro, we'll solve those problems later. Yeah, uh, and you know, unfortunately, well, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. But but at the same time, that's why I was saying I don't think they are. Well, they were at that time uh, naive either, or like short-sighted. But that uh, I think like the, the the main concept here that a lot of people ignore is that there were bad presidents mm. because in the 2000s, uh, it, uh, both uh, Germany and France were facing uh, an, an economic crisis for different reasons. The, the first one in, in Germany was like the reunification of Germany and there was a housing bubble. And at the same time, we know that here in the U.S. there was like the dot-com bubble. Yeah. And be, be, because of that, the, the German banks were really exposed to, to the, the U.S. Uh, crisis. So there was a problem in terms of uh, uh, economic uh, uh, prosperity. Well, and, and I'm shocked to find that out, too, because 2007 Alan Greenspan assures me that housing can't possibly be a bubble. Uh, there, there can't possibly be a collapse in the, the in in the housing market. Are you kidding? No, uh, no, <laughs> no, yeah. With you know, with German uh, the German reunification, you had this, I, I guess, very unique situation where you, you know the, uh, the Eastern Germany uh, under the the constraints of communism, um, you know had become a very different place than western germany yeah and all of a sudden you take those t those two places that over 50 years had become i mean yeah it, it, it wouldn't be i don't think it'd be too extreme to say polar opposites and you just go okay you're one country yeah. now different systems for yeah. sure and all of a sudden you know there there's this uh mobility and fluidity between the two and you know you you've got i mean basically you uh, as i understand it you had this uh giant push to say hey let's start building in eastern germany Correct. because it's cheap yeah like it, it's dirt cheap over there and buying uh, houses and creating this bubble and because of that the, and, and again also like uh, th there was a lot of uh, fiscal spending mm. because you want to make uh, eastern germany as competitive as the the, the whole country but this is not possible if the central bank doesn't give you like th th this flexibility. Yeah. If if the the central bank decides to uh, increase the interest rate, then uh, the market the markets dry up. 
and if the market dry up you cannot borrow as much as 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 you want to create like this sort of integration yeah the 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 stabilize between the two yeah to find that equilibrium point but it happened to be the case that uh, indeed uh, the european central bank tried to use some uh, expansionary policies to help uh, France and Germany. Mm. And this makes sense because they are like the main economies within the, the Eurozone. Yeah, the, two, the, the twin pillars kind of holding up the whole system. But they were, of course, they were also like the first one to violate the, <laughs> well, the, the, the criteria. So they were setting a bad precedent. They were signaling, you know, like we have these guidelines, but we can, you know, sometimes... Uh, do things differently than we are supposed to do. Well, and it's, I mean, uh, yeah, essentially sending that signal to any other country in the Eurozone or any other country that wanted to join the Eurozone is that we have these very strict policies. Uh, We have these very, you know, uh, rigid limits, except when things get really bad. Yeah. or, Or except in, you know, extreme circumstances. Well, that, again, yeah, that sends out the signal that, there is this safety net that you know if if things just get too bad the the ecb will just swoop in and compensate things to to fix it correct it, it's similar to the 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 us in the sense qe yep. was a, a policy that uh like hadn't been implemented before the financial crisis and no one was expecting uh from the federal reserve to uh, try to target um, uh, debt or like in this case bonds that had a maturity that uh, was more than six months. Mm. And that was like an, an unprecedented move. But Bernanke said that it, it's, it's also because it was an, unpre- an unprecedented situation. Yeah. So you need to come up with uh, like a new policies. And to some extent, having this flexibility is good. Or at least that was like the perception of... Uh, not uh, like the core of the eurozone as you were saying they said well if this happens now it might happen in the future as well Mm. and on top of that because there was like this monetary expansion they 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 did benefit from it Mm. even though at that time maybe it wasn't like the best policy because it was uh credit cheap credit for countries that were already experiencing like a, a booming situation yeah so that, that that was probably like a distortion of the system, and I'd, I I would say that Germany did two things. What were those two things? How did they impact the eurozone? Did one of them involve Schnitzel? Sorry, folks, you're gonna have to wait two weeks to find out. Uh, this is our first two-part episode on. Okay, let me tell you why you're wrong. Uh, Joseph and I wound up talking for well over three hours about the subject, and uh, I figured in the interest of uh, storage space on your phones or computers, uh, I'd just kind of cut the episode in half and uh, save part two for uh, next time. So in two weeks, I'll be posting part two of the Eurozone. Uh, I, uh, if you enjoy our show, let me just, uh, do a quick bit of business here and encourage you to rate and review us on, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to uh, this podcast. Uh, let me also encourage you all, uh, to join us on Facebook, uh, 
started a Facebook group uh, under, okay, let me tell you why you're wrong. Uh, come and find us uh, and uh, join up. That's uh, where I push out uh, notifications for uh, episodes, uh, notifications for future episodes, and, and the like. Um, and uh, yeah, and we will be back in two weeks from now uh, with part two of the Eurozone Crisis. Uh, see you then.